how to just read it and to sit and to hear it and to understand that it's not about our astuteness, but rather it is about God's divine work in us to understand it and apply it to our lives. And then together as the church, we are able to encourage each other in our learning, to encourage each other in our living, and most of all to encourage each other as we love the Lord by loving one another. There's not any place for pride in the Christian life. There's no place whatsoever. There's no place for being right. There's no place for having one's own way. And we can learn that in the context of Genesis as we see in the creation of the world that there is nothing that God did to inquire from anyone about what He was going to do. God did not ask the creation what it thought. He did not ask for its participation. It was not, then it was, and all that is, He calls to be. So remember, beloved, we're not here. The, 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 the Bible is not a textbook for history. The Bible is not a textbook for science. The Bible has nothing to do with these things. The Bible has everything and only everything to do with the revelation of God to His people through His divine power in every aspect. And so before we move into the temptation and before we move into the fall and before we move actually even into the, the, the real purposes of the creation of Eve out of man who came out of dirt that was created by God and so on and so forth in these pictures, I want us to understand that the whole point of this, and I've said it again and again and again, but I'm going to say it this morning with emphasis, is that the point of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on is to clearly see the gospel. It's not a hidden message. It's not something that you have to study for years and years to see. It's something that really we have to sit still and understand the simplicity of God's grace. And that is part of what faith is. That is what God-given faith does, is it sits still and sees the simplicity of God's grace. It's not a mystery to the believer because we're the believer. We're the believing one, so it's no longer a mystery. It's just, wow. But at the same time, it is a very complex, supernatural, divine work that has justice at the center of it and righteousness at the center of it and atonement at the center of it. Imputation is the reality of grace and the gospel. Good news, good news, good news. This is where we sometimes fall apart is that we take the pieces as the principle rather than seeing what they point to, who is Jesus Christ, the good news bringer, the life bringer, the creator of life. Understand the world was created so that God's glory would be seen in the salvation of His people through Jesus Christ, His Son. That is why the world exists. That's what the Scripture teaches us about this. There is no other purpose. There's no, no other purpose in the world whatsoever except that it exists that God may be glorified in the salvation of His people. He created the cosmos in its infinite inexpressible, <laughs> eternal way to be a finite picture of His infinite power, of His infinite redemption through Jesus Christ for a particular people that He created for Himself. We've learned a lot. Whether we sit in that learning and understand it is up to the Lord. It's up to the Lord. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's very easy to, to, to bog down in commentary. It's very easy to bog down in cross-references. It's very easy to bog down in, 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 in historical things. It's very easy to bog down 
in popular ideas. The idea of philosophy, when we talk about philosophizing, what that means is, is that we hear something. This is a ring, and the ring is silver. We think about it, and that thinking, that thinking and coming to conclusions is part of philosophizing. That's the simplistic reality of what it means. And you'll see here, especially going into next week, that man's been in the business, humanity has been in the business of philosophizing since the very beginning. We see, we experience, we understand, we comprehend data, we get information, we gain knowledge, and then we begin to mold it around and think, hmm, hmm, hmm. And there are a lot of intelligent people. Intelligence doesn't mean wise. Beloved, I want you to hear that. Intelligence doesn't mean wise. As a matter of fact, when we see Paul teaching to the Corinthians who were known for their great wisdom and their ability to, to parse life out into equal portions of reason and logic, Paul says that God doesn't use that. Now we see historically, for, uh, for those of us who are uh, hobbyists for historical theology and church history, of which I am, we, we see the fodder and the foolishness, the folly, if you will. There's been arguments too, but we see the folly of how man has always come to great conclusions. And then wise minds, supposedly, knowledgeable minds, sophists, if I can be truthful, have all sat down and go, yes, we agree with these things. And then when they fight, matter of fact, I had a professor one time tell me that the thing that I should focus on most in my studies theologically are the things that people debated and argued over. And I'm like, that makes sense. You know why it makes sense? Because that's what we like. That's what we look to, to figure out, have we got the right information? Well, see, salvation is not about the right information. Salvation is not about the right understanding in our humanity. Salvation is about the sovereign gift of grace, which is believing the simplicity of grace. And all the things that the Scripture teaches. And the Garden of Eden, as we talked about last week, is, is a type of temple. It's a picture of the temple. It's a picture of where God may, meets man. And beloved, I just want us to be careful not to dig into this. I mean, I've got books from archaeologists who feel like they have found the location of Eden. No, they haven't. They have not found the location of Eden. That's as dumb as me saying, I just went to the sun. The location of Eden was clearly marked on the cross. Jesus Christ is Eden. Jesus Christ is the resting place. Jesus Christ is where God meets man. And we'll close our service today with that understanding. Let's remember that what we've learned thus far in the creation of the world and everything in it, that God has created everything. He made the dirt, He made the water, and out of the dirt He made everything that lives, that walks upon the land. Out of the dirt He made the beasts, He made the trees, and He made man out of the same dirt. You want to see the substance of things? Why is it that when we see historically the use of these very phrases, from, dirt, from dust you came and from dust you shall return? What does that show us about our lives? That we're just a vapor. James has been teaching this. And in our midweek, we started back the book of James. 
um, uh, this past Wednesday, and we'll be teaching a little bit continually through that. We see that it's just a vapor. Life is a vapor. It's not important that we build legacies in this world. It's not important that we establish some long-term genealogy of our name. It's It's not important that we create pyramids. So that thousands of years later, people can say, oh, look, look what he built. Okay, it's impressive. I can't make a snake out of Play-Doh. So it's impressive to see people of antiquity build things that modern-day engineers marvel over. Yes, but it's nothing. It's nothing. We're not here except to understand, beloved, as the body of Christ, that we came from dust and we will return to dust. And the only way that our life accounts for anything fruitful or worthy is that we live it unto the glory of God. And the glory of God is revealed in a singular and myopic way in the the Scriptures for the believing ones. And that is the person of Jesus Christ who redeemed His people from death. He redeemed us from the dust. He gives our life purpose and meaning and center. Because to be in the presence of God together, to be called the children of God, to be called the body of Christ is the point of life. And let's remember, just like I said last week, is that in the New Testament especially, that if we're not connected with a biblical body, elders and deacons and believers, the wheat and even the chaff are going to be around, beloved. It's always going to be the way. If we're not connected to the body, there is no division in our Christian walk. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian who has any application of the New Testament in any significant way except theological study. And the Scripture doesn't call us to theological study. The Scripture calls us to what? Worship. in the good and in the bad. In the book of Genesis, in the creation account, this teaches us these principles. We are called to worship. We learned that last week. To work and to keep the garden is the preparation of the heart in the presence of God to worship Him. In the picture, if I had time, I could show you. I could show you. I could show you in Moses. I could show you in Abraham. I could show you the tabernacle and the temple and the worship of the, of, of the Jews throughout all of the Old Testament and show you that it's just same picture of Eden and eventually God takes away that because Christ is the fulfillment of it all. God made the dirt. God made the trees. God made man. God made a garden where man can live with Him forevermore. Who's the actor? God. Who else is doing anything? Nobody. God has done it all. God makes the commands and He tells man what He's supposed to do. And the Scripture teaches us very clearly, if man is not in the presence and the power of God, he will not live. He will not live. So out of God came man and out of man, then, as we'll see, come woman. And God the Father sends the Son just as the woman comes from the man, etc. and so forth. And we'll learn these things over the next few weeks. And the Son dies for the elect, and out of the body of Jesus comes life for His people. Let's go to the Word this morning and let's look. Let's just read chapter 2 all the way down to verse 20. Let's just read the whole chapter. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the host, all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on that day from all the work that He has done. So God has blessed the seventh day and set it apart, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work and to keep the ground, and a mist was going up from the land as was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dirt from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good to eat. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Now get this picture in your mind, beloved. Out of the garden flowed the rivers, not into the garden. Out of the garden. And the name of the first is Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, of which we're familiar with that name, which flows east of, the, of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, which we're familiar with that name. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep it and to work it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for when you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air of the heavens of the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he should call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not help, found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took from the man a rib and closed it up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought the woman to the man, and gave her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Which is what the word means. Therefore man shall leave his father, and shall leave his mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, there's a lot. I'm probably going to be here for three or four weeks in this. But before we move to the nuts and bolts, or the bones and flesh of the circumstances here, I want us to get to the doctrine. I want us to get to the picture that is continuing. This is not a new story. This is the same story that we started out in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. This is the same story. Now, it's 
continuing. God is continuing to create. He created man. He created woman. He created Eden. He put them in the garden. He gave them a commandment. He gave them a promise of life that was conditional. And the condition was not meant to be kept by man. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And I don't want to really get into it until we get into chapter 3. But, well, if Adam and Eve had just not eaten from the fruit, everything would have been perfect. No, everything's perfect now. Everything is perfect now because if you want to define perfect by the way you think it should be, rather than the way the Scripture commands it to be, God said all things are perfect according to the counsel of His will. Horror, disease, death, destruction. These are perfect things because God has established them and decreed them. No, it's not utopia, but I don't want utopia. I want righteousness. I want absolute divine perfection. God has promised that and decreed that and secured that in the creation of the world, which points to His absolute power to create a people for Himself, showing that He will accomplish ultimate perfection, ultimate peace, ultimate rest. In Christ Jesus. And the work is finished. We're waiting for the consummation. We're waiting for the one flesh moment. Which is what marriage points to. That's the only point of marriage. So out of God comes all life. He creates all life. And we see there, and I don't want to go through every particular verse, but let's just take the theme here. We see this idea that Eden is the center of creation. That in the center of all creation, God then established trees that give life, sustenance. Then He put man in the garden so that man could continue to prepare worship for this life-giving sustenance that God has given him and that in doing so, he will remain forever with God. God, as we'll see, walks in the middle of the garden. And outside of the Garden of Eden, or in the center of the Garden of Eden, is the tree of life. Outside the Garden of Eden, if we see in verse 8 there, away from that, then the garden is the land of Eden. And then if we go back to chapter 1, we see outside of that is the dry land. So I want you to picture this for a second. Here's the land... Here is the land of Eden. Here's the garden of Eden. And in the center of it is the tree of life where the Lord dwells. The temple is a picture or the garden is a picture of the temple. The temple is a picture of redemption, of God's sovereign and free, gracious work to save His people for Himself. So when we look at this stuff, there's a lot of things that we need to understand. I mean... People have decided, oh, I know where this stuff is. No, we don't need, nobody knows, in the context of this description here, nobody knows anything about the land of Cush. Nobody knows anything about these other two rivers that we've never heard of. Nobody's heard of them. These, 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 these scientists and these academics who say, oh, we know, it's ridiculous. We're not supposed to know. We're not going to find Eden. Just thought we're not going to go to Israel right now and find the temple. It is not there. There's not some mysterious place that God's hiding from our eyes. I mean, look at the look at the look at the reality of the way religion has bankrupted kingdoms 
in the attempt to find the cup that Jesus drank out of, or the robe that Jesus wore, or the nails that pierced his hands, or the place where he might have cried, or the alabaster box that might have been broken. People are always looking for a relic. People are always looking for some tangible souvenir. And beloved, we have to be careful not to philosophize to the point that we're looking for a tangible souvenir to undergird our faith. Beloved, faith is not by sight. It is by the Word of God alone through the Spirit of God who grants us to rest in what we cannot see. And what we cannot see. Though we love Him, we have not seen Him. We love Him. What does Peter say in 1 Peter? We love Him. We have not seen Him. We now do not see Him, but we love Him. And we rest, and we serve, and we suffer with a joy that is often, I love His words, inexpressible. We look to that which is unseen, not to that which is seen, Paul says. Now, know what's the difference maker? See, some people like to argue, well, you know, the Bible and everything in it is evidentiary, supported, and uh, blah, blah, blah. And then you end up with this incredible field of apologetics that is absolute ridiculous. Well, we can prove archaeologically that the Bible is true. We can prove scientifically that the Bible is true. Whoop-de-doo! I've got philosophy books in my house. I've got mathematical books in my house. I've got science books. In my, I've got medical books in my house. I've got books on neurosurgery. I've got books on cardiology. I've got books on cellular reproduction. And you know what's crazy? Some of those books that I have were printed in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. And the science has changed. The knowledge has changed. The wisdom has changed. The things that they do to understand the body has changed. Even from the 1960s, medicine has come a thousand percent. Above and beyond where it was then. Especially mental health. And so am I supposed to prove these things because they... We don't use the Bible like that. There are laws of nature that are absolute. There are laws of mathematics and physics and things that cannot change. That's why we call them laws. But our understanding of those things are so finite in the depth of all that they are, we are not going to prove God through any of it. And proving God is, is not salvation. Because Paul says in Romans 1 that all people know. They know. But not all people believe. And then people can say, well, what, what about all the other types of religion? What about all the other sects of Christianity historically? What about all the other cults? What about all the other things? What about mysticism? Everybody else has a simple faith. Yes, but where is the faith? Where does the faith lie? It lies in an experience. It lies as an action. Or it lies in some book just like the Bible. So we can prove the Bible. See, the Bible is the better book. No, the Bible is the revelation of God to His people. If you're not God's people and you haven't been born of the Spirit, you won't sit and rest in the knowledge of what the Word teaches. And we're not called. Evangelism is not convincing people. Evangelism is declaring 
the very thing that I've been talking about this morning. And letting God deal with the fruit of it. As a matter of fact, is God not the one who created the Garden of Eden? Is God not the one who created the Tree of Life? Is God not the one who reproduces all things according to the counsel of His will? Uh, are all these things not pictures of God's ability and sovereign pleasure to replicate His people in His Son? To grow them, to birth them, to sprout them, to mature them, to teach them. It's God's business. I think I closed my sermon out on that last... No, that was Wednesday. It's God, God's business. It's God's business to grow His people. It's God's business to regenerate His people. It's God's business to save His people, and He's done that already. He's done the salvation is over. It is finished. Jesus Christ has saved all the elect forever and ever in His death. They are all saved. They will not perish. And in the time of the Lord, as He sees fit, He will teach them this truth and they will have a rest in the reality that sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. But see, what we like, though, what we like in our day is we like to sound intelligent. Because what I've just explained to a person of great intelligence sounds weakly stupid. You're just a religious zealot. You're just one of those idiots. Friends... I would say raise your hand, but we block each other's view if you know a religious idiot. But to some people, we're the religious idiot. Depends on what you're looking at. Depends on how you're filtering it. Depends on how you're defining stuff. Depends on perception. So I am a religious idiot. I'm the fool. It's ridiculous for me to believe the things that I teach but not by the power of God. We're not the intellectual superior people. We are the humble servants, the objects of grace. We're the ones who have been granted great understanding into an incredible mystery that makes no sense to anybody else. The highest scholars of Judaism who will know the Bible in a technical sense more than any of us could ever know because we haven't lived that life. Yet we know the truth. His name is Jesus Christ. And we can peer through the pages of history. We can go back and see uh, in this Old Testament, we can see all of the actions of God's people, but really it's the actions of God using His people to bring about revelation of His redemption. And we can understand all of this stuff and then have a better appreciation for the gospel in a mental way. But these things don't save us. Only God saves us. God the Father sent the Son into the world and the Son dies for the elect. And the Son has saved His people and has raised Himself to life. And the trees that give life, we have a greater life than the trees can give. The intimacy of the Garden of Eden, walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, as we'll see, we have a greater intimacy than Adam ever had. To behold all of that early creation, to behold the beauty of the Garden of Eden, if I could just see it, we have a greater beauty that we can see right now in the face of Christ. See this? Beloved, it is idolatry to go back to the Garden and want that. 
to miss what it points to. It is idolatry to undergird sovereign and free grace with apologetics that are evidential. It is idolatry to think that if we learn enough stuff that we might come to a better grasp when it is the fool, when it is the unlearned, when it is the the lowly things that God uses. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we aren't to study the Word because the Bible, the New Testament, teaches us to, do, to study, to show yourself approved. But what are we to study? That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're studying, but we're reading the old in light of the new as it was intended to be understood. Simply. And you might think to yourself, I'll never get this. Yes, you will. You will get it, beloved. The problem is, we're so ingrained and we're so rigid in our ability to freely listen without the infusion of prior learning and experiences that we are having a hard time unlearning these things. Well, God has commanded all things into existence. God has commanded that the man work the garden and God has given a command that he shall not eat of the knowledge of good and evil. And the commands of God, as this is reviewed, as we know them, are good. But then the scripture says it is not good for man to be alone. Is this something new? Is this a new doctrine? Is this a new teaching? Is this some new, now added reality that God is imparting to us on His Word, from His Word? No, this is the same story. God created, there was nothing. God created everything. God made good and orderly everything. Then all of a sudden, in the end of it all, God has created all these creatures and given them all life. He's created plants and given them life. And there's also all, 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 all neat things that we don't even know, we've never even seen yet in this world that lives. And He created man and He created a place for man to meet with Him. And without this place, man is dead. Without this tree of life, man does not exist. And the only significance of this is that God is there in the center of the garden. So the tree is representative of the presence of God, just like the Ark of the Covenant is representative of the presence of God. And so on and so forth. And so when man leaves the presence of God, he is alone, he is forsaken, he is dead, he shall die. The presence of God can be understood in some of the commands and some of the promises and all of the decrees of God. And we'll see that as we continue to unfold these next few chapters. But it's not good for man to be alone. And so the picture of this reality is that God then has to do something different than He's already done. Why not just out of the dust take and create woman? Because that's not a gospel picture. Because that which was created out of the dust will return to dust. That which was created out of man, see the picture? Is from man. So when we are in the presence of God, when we are created in Christ Jesus, when we are found in Him, we don't return to dust in a spiritual sense. We live forever. Yes, this body will die, and we know that is the purpose of God. We know that we will decay and, you know, but we will be made new. It's about eternal life. 
Eternal life is only found in God. And the picture of God creating woman out of man is a picture of Christ creating a church out of His body. Simple. His body was torn in two. His, the temple curtain was torn in two. The temple was destroyed. Eden was sealed off. And, 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 and we were taken away from it because we're not fit for the presence of God except that God Himself takes us out of Himself and creates us anew. This is rebirth. This is what baffled Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But see, we like to technically uh, try to affirm the reality of regeneration. Regeneration is this, and then this happens, and then this happens, and it's all experiential. It's all whatever our culture has taught us to look at, and we miss everything else when we look at certain things. The Bible says that regeneration is being born of God and His divine power in a new way. Not the old way you were born into the world by creation and through the progeny uh, as a progeny from your parents, but being found in the Creator Himself. Being put in the center of Christ forever. Life is in Christ alone. Man cannot be alone lest he perish. You think, you know, I've never heard this before. Yes, you have. You just haven't made the connection. You've heard this before. You know this. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, you see Paul clearly teaching this. Go there. Let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 5. This is mysterious. I've never heard this before, Pastor. What are you teaching now? You have need some more sleep. Stop drinking coffee. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God. The whole reason Eden was created, to praise Him for His glorious grace. This is, this is Paul's theme. This is his drum in his writing to the Ephesians. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. Gratitude always has an object, the one who, to whom we are thankful. In the name, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who grants us this intimacy submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's why I started there, because if I start at verse 22, it's disconnected. Verse 22 is a, is a continuation of this teaching. Submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ. Wives also submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, out of his body, he himself is its Savior. By his blood, by his flesh. If you don't drink of my blood and eat of my flesh. By his blood, by his death, by his being crushed by the Father. He has set apart his people forever. To the uttermost he has saved us. This is Paul writing in Hebrews and Colossians and other places like that. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, also love your wife as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, might be set apart and blameless and perfect, without blemish. See, if we are not found in Christ's death, in His burial, in the crushing of His flesh, we are not birthed out of Him, we will die. If we are out of Christ, we will live forever. For the body of Christ was crushed once for our iniquities and then raised forevermore as a promise of the life-giving tree of life who is Jesus Christ. We will live with Him forever in the true Eden Himself in the presence of His glory. In the same way, verse 28, Ephesians 5, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but takes care of it and feeds it and bathes it and nurses it and cherishes it just as Christ does His own body, the church, because we are members of His own body. Therefore, and you might say, well, you're stretching it. No, Paul basically quotes Moses. But quotes God, actually. Therefore, man shall leave his father and shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Oh, Lord. But I am saying it refers to Christ and his assembly. However, let each one of you love his wife as you love yourselves and let the wife see that she respects her husband as she does the Lord. What is the leaving? This is something that just... The leaving of father and mother is to forsake the natural birth. The leaving of the father and mother is to forsake the familial bond, is to forsake the attachment to the world, is to forsake our connection to Adam and the picture of becoming one flesh as husband and wife is to show what Christ did in creation and what He promised in Eden to the end of time for His people, that He would be one with His people. And we'll... And we're going to have an entire sermon on that in the weeks to come. An entire sermon on the picture of the gospel and the marriage. Because I've made a lot of comments, I've made a lot of points through the years, but I might teach two weeks out on that. <laughs> because I think we have gone back in a lot of ways in our understanding of relationships in the home, in marriage, husbands and wives, I think we've gone a lot of ways to a relic mentality. We've let history dictate what those relationships should look like rather than the gospel. We've told women that they're not as important and that they're not as precious as they're not as, they're not as able. What's that? We've taught men that they are to lord over people. But it's garbage. It's sinful. Nobody's in charge. There's a picture to fill. The very fact that somebody feels like they're in charge is sinful. Are you in charge? Are you in charge of your salvation? No, that's sinful. Are you, in, are you involved in your salvation? No, except as a recipient of it. Do you have anything to do to affect your salvation? No. 
Were you there when Christ died on the cross? No. Did you jab him with the spear? No. So you weren't there. You didn't kill him. You didn't put him on the cross. So you had nothing to do with it. Who put him on the cross? The Bible says the Father put him on the cross. Through every natural means. How does a man get acquitted? And then people cry out for his death. How does a man like Jesus be so gentle and teach so clearly and be beloved by the majority, yet the majority fear him because they fear their rulers by the will of God who affects those types of things in the, sin, in the sinful flesh of humanity for his purposes? We weren't there. Does that sound familiar? What's the oldest book in the Bible? Job. Isn't that what God asked Job? Where were you, Job, when I said, poof, and there was a universe? Where were you, Job, when I named and numbered the stars? Where were you, Job, when I put things in the abyss that you would poo-poo your pants if you saw? Where were you, Job, You'd die if you saw some of the things that I have created in the world. Just by looking upon them, you'd die. Where were you, Job? Where were you, Christian? Where were you, saint? Where were you, child of God? We had nothing to do with our existence. We had nothing to do with our redemption. It is a free gift of God. Sovereign gift. And that is where faith rests. First and foremost... Saving faith, if we can call it that. That's a cliched term. It's, ah, I'm getting sick of it. Saving faith is knowing God's sovereignty and power in redemption. And then you say, well then how? And then it tells us, doesn't it? The scripture tells us He created a body for Himself and became like the creature that he may die in the place of the creature, thus justice is fulfilled and righteousness reigns. And then his perfection, his obedience, his sacrifice, his life, all that he is, is imputed to us to our credit that we might be the righteousness of God. And there's so much more there. See, man cannot be alone. If we are out of the presence of God's power and life-giving power we die we die that's the same. i mean we've been through john's gospel right we were four years in john's gospel and we heard jesus i am the living water go a week without water what happens you dehydrate matter of fact if you have a if you have a stomach bug or a flu and you have some problems and you're not supplementing and reestablishing your hydration, you could die in a week. I mean, you could die in a day. An infant could die in a matter of four hours without water. Dehydration. Jesus is the living water. You drink all the water you want, but you can't live if you're not attached to the living water. John 4. John 6. We can go without eating, but eventually the body shuts down. When our stores of our body fat go, we begin to decay. 
we begin to die, our system shut down, our kidneys shut down, our liver shuts down, our lungs shut down, our brain shuts down, we die because we don't have the nutrients, we don't have the, we don't have the, the energy, the carbohydrates and things like that to keep our body working. We die. Jesus says, as they labored to get more food from him in John chapter 6, Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but labor for the bread that endures to eternal life. I am the bread that comes down from heaven sent by the Father to give life to all men. So that if anyone is going to live, he must live by eating of the flesh and the blood of Jesus. You see how silly we are? How, relic, how relics can become so important that we think, sub, you know, that, uh, we think the body and the blood of Jesus can become physically present with us? We think that there's some special magic power if we could just find that trout of Turin or whatever it might be and get the DNA of Jesus off of it. See, people understand logically what the Scripture is teaching, but they can't rest spiritually unless God gives them eyes and a heart and a mind to just sit still and know that these pictures point to the finished work of Christ and Him alone. It's not about what we do to grab hold of Christ. It's what God has done to snatch us out of death in Christ. This is why it's called good news. God spell. God speak. The evangel, the good news. Seeing clearly the gospel is to see clearly the gospel of sovereign and free grace. Imputed life. Imputed righteousness. Imputed atonement. We didn't atone for our sins. Christ atoned for our sins. Man cannot be alone. So as the bride in a marriage is a picture of the church, so the husband in the marriage is the picture of the life-giving Savior. Just as Adam in the garden is the picture of God's sovereign rule over creation. But the only true man who is in the image of God is Jesus Christ. And then one day we will be made like Him. We fret too much about understanding these things rather than sitting simply and worshiping God for them. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God is the one who created all things and has given all life. He's given the picture of the garden, the picture of the trees that sustain life. These things will recreate after their own kind. Humanity has been called to subdue the earth and procreate after its own kind. And so we realize that, the, 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 you know, what we see going into this idea about these trees, and we'll know this more next week, is that this, this is not magical fruit. It's about the presence of God. God is the one who is the life giver. He is the life bringer. He is the one through whose presence all life will be sustained. So proximity to the tree of life is truly meaning to be with Christ. Because we eat of God's provision, Christ. And if we do not eat of God's provision, we die. So God gives a command. Conditioned upon the creature... Do not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what is that? We'll talk about that. But in a nutshell, it's the experience 
of sin. <laughs> it's the experience of being outside God's promises. It's the experience of the inquiry of human philosophizing. Because that's what Adam did. And that's what Eve did. And when we look at this, we see that the condition given to the creature, and we know, we know what chapter 3 happens, right? The serpent, the enemy of God, in the form of a serpent. We're not supposed to figure that out. It doesn't matter. It's just, I mean, you know, snakes are scared. Tempted Eve, then tempted Adam. Eve tempted Adam, and they ate of it, and their eyes were open. The last thing we said today was they were both naked and they were not ashamed. I'm sure all of us have had dreams where we show up without pants on somewhere, at school or at work or at church or something. It would be a very shameful situation unless we're extremely proud of the way we look. <laughs> and then we're going to end up getting arrested for it. But they were ashamed. And when something is conditioned upon the creature, the creature will all, I want you to listen to this, the creature will always yield to the senses and to their own interpretation of the experience. I am with God. I'm I'm His new creation. He is out of me, given me this woman. And now there's these trees and everything I need for life. I'm to worship Him. Thank you, Lord. Don't do this. What? And all of a sudden, that's where my mind's at. My senses are. Wonder why. The doubt was there. The sin was in the heart already. Because that's what the senses do. Because we are not righteous. Except that our righteousness is alien. And the creature will always give in. God must remain the sovereign life giver if there is going to have any life, if there's going to be any life at all. For eternal life to exist, God must be the sovereign life giver. He must be the sovereign life keeper. Jesus says that all that come to me, the Father will give them to me. The Father will drag them to me. They will come to me. I will never cast them out. No one can pluck them out of my hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Unbelief cannot separate you from the love of God, beloved. The love of God for His people is secured and finished in Christ. So therefore, everyone whom Christ has loved in His death, in His atoning work, will not die in unbelief. He will bring them to the knowledge of His grace. So like the trees in the garden, at the center of the garden, the place where life is, the place where man will not die, is to be in Christ. To be in the garden is to be in Christ, near the life-giving tree. And those conditions that we'll see when we get into chapter 3, are given and the creature proves his ability. 
proves his ability. And what is the ability of the creature? To die. That's what we do. The law is given to show us that no matter what, no matter how hard the consequences may be, we are guilty and we will die. The law was given. Do not eat of this. Because when you do, you're going to die. You're going to die. Why would we ever consider that? Because in our flesh, we are dissatisfied with the presence of God. We are dissatisfied with the promises of God. Because we would rather look at the clear, logical knowledge of what it means to be like God. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Of understanding God a little more. Of judging the way God judges. Of ruling the way God rules. Starting to sound like humanity, isn't it? Well, we better set up our government to bring the presence. Why do you think all these different millennial ideologies exist? Because of man creating their own Eden. People trying to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because man wants to create their own Eden. Man wants to create their own tree of life and call it Jesus. He's going to put the name on it, but it's not the person. Because the person of Christ has already fulfilled righteousness. The person of Christ has already established justice for the elect, for the children of God, for us. And we will be the believing ones. So new life is, it's not a real word, but it's regenerative, it's regenerational. New life is only that which is regenerated. And that which is regenerated is that which comes out of Christ, that comes out of the death of Christ, that comes out of the body of Christ, that comes out of the presence of Christ, not as in separated from it, but lives from it. The work of Christ. And that new life is always alive. God is always giving this new life. He is always gracious. He is always the one who keeps us in Himself. But humanity, what do we do? Humanity sometimes determines what we constitute as good, what we constitute as life, what we constitute as divine rather than the God spell, the gospel, the God speak, the gospel, the good news of what God has done, where in and through which and by which we are able to sit still and rest in the knowledge that God has sovereignly and freely declared that He alone is the one who in whom we find life. His provision is the one is the only place we find life. Now, when we think of Eden as a picture of the temple, we think of Adam and Eve as priests in the temple serving and doing, etc., but specifically Adam and his commandment. And we're going to talk about covenants in the next few weeks somewhere in a way that you probably never thought about them because we have to do it exegetically rather than historically. But I want to just make some assertions real quick to land our plane today. We understand the priesthood. We understand the priesthood of believers. We could literally say to one another, if we introduce somebody to someone else, we could say, hi, this is Dave, a royal priest. <laughs> nice to meet you, John, a royal priest. Isn't that weird? 
That would sound weird, right? People would like, there's a new cult in town. <laughs> you know, we're the royal priests. I mean, could you imagine? We call ourselves Priest James, Priest Julie, Priest so-and-so. I mean, it'd be a priestess, sorry. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean that, would be, that would be weird, right? Of course it'd be weird. Because we're not, but we are. We are in that we are able to be in the presence and the service of God as worshipers. We are in that we are in as the body of Christ, as Christ. Christ is the true and only royal priest. He is the one. He alone is the one who is in the presence of God, sitting down, having completed all the works and all the conditions necessary for the covenant and the promise of life eternal for God's people. Jesus Christ is the true and only priest. So we are just little pictures of priests. Just like I may be a shepherd in the context of my calling and the work that I do as a New Testament overseer, but I am not the shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd of the shepherd. But I'm really a sheep. You want to be a sheep, beloved. If you're not a sheep, you're in charge of it all. If you're not a sheep, you are looking for your own eating. You're going through a different door. You're eating tin cans painted green thinking it's grass. And the only thing I know that does that is a goat. Jesus is the only image of the true God. The Imago Dei, Jesus Christ, that is it. That's the point. We have some way of looking at the New Testament before the fall that this is an illustration of this promise that God one day through humanity will bring the perfect true image bearer, Jesus Christ. Where you get that stuff? John's Gospel. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Just keep looking. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of His nature, the essence of all that God is. Jesus is the glory, the glory giver. He's the revelation. Paul tells it to the Corinthians. All that we can see concerning God, we know and clearly see through the face of Jesus Christ. We're not looking through veil like Moses. We're not looking at the, the essence of God's ethereal robe as it walks by. We're not looking at the shadow and seeing the wind. We're looking at God in the face through Jesus Christ. He is the true image of God. And because of that, Jesus Christ is the true presence of God. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. You will be with God if you are with me. When we walked upon the earth, when He walked upon the earth, those who walked with Him walked with God in the cool of the day. Eden was not rediscovered in the first century. Eden came from heaven and tabernacled with us. And we have seen the presence of God. We have established the permanence of God's presence with His people, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is what the Garden of Eden represents. This is what the first Adam and the first Eve represent. This is what the new reality of the world represents in the gospel of grace. Jesus is the true water. As in the center of the world, the Garden of Eden and the land of Eden and the dry land and the world and the earth and the cosmos, everything exudes from that place is the center of life. All the water comes from nothing in that place out to water everything that lives. Jesus Christ is the center. He is the true place from which the rivers of life flow. 
the river and the well of the water of life wells up and boils over. It cannot be contained. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the true center. We're the picture of the center of the Holy of Holies inside the holy place, inside the courtyard, inside the, uh, and inside Jerusalem. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. He is the place where God meets man. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He is the place where the blood is poured to cover the law which brings death. See these pictures? Jesus is the true Eden. Jesus is the true God. In closing, Jesus is the point of it all. He is the glory of all things, the purpose of all things, the point of all things. He is the one eternal resting place for God's people. And if we are not resting in Him, we are seeking out our own understanding and our own place and making conditions that He Himself has not promised will bring anything but frustration, fear, death, and destruction. And beloved, the believer can turn his back to look to Eden. The believer can turn, its, turn his back to look to Sodom. And Sodom and Gomorrah are pictures of man's doing. And it's no different than the temple of Jerusalem. See, that's what made the Jews mad with Jesus. That's what made them mad when he would preach in the synagogues. And he would talk about God's destruction upon the wicked and God's blessing upon, upon his people. And they would say, yay, this man speaks peace to us. He speaks life to us. We are Israel. Those Samaritans, they're about to get their due. And Jesus would say, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about them. These people have never been in the presence of God. These people have never served in the temple. Jesus says, I'm the temple, buddy. You want, to, you want me to show you something? Tear it down in three days. I'm going to show you what life's all about. I'm going to build it back. I'm going to build the temple back. What did he do? He got up out of the grave. It's real easy for us to look at debauchery and wickedness and evil things and ideologies and philosophies and worldviews and go, yeah, they're evil. It's a lot harder for us to look in the mirror of our own soul and realize that our religion oftentimes is just as vile. Beloved, that's why gift of God's grace brings about faith that rests not in what we can come to and what we can be and how we can work it out, but it's how God has finished the work in His creative power, His divine power. See, it's puzzling, isn't it? Because it rocks. It's like marbles in your head. It rocks against the very nature of our flesh. But, 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 but seriously hear me. It is the only place of true rest. The only place of true, true rest. I have felt personally over the last year or so that, that I have been in the midst of the deepest sea. And on the hottest of days, I don't know, I've never been in the sea, I'm not going to go in the sea, but I can imagine having been under fresh water, you know, shallow fresh water, 10, 12, 15 feet. When the sun's up, you can see it. You can look up and you can see it. You can see the light shining down. But I imagine even the depths of certain places of the ocean, when the, when the sun is right over here, you can see it. But you're so far away, you'll never get up. You'll never get to the surface. And I felt like I've been in the midst of the deepest part of a sea, and I see the light, and I think, oh... Here I come, I'm floating to the surface. No, I'm not floating to the surface at all. I'm not getting anywhere. 
And as long as I'm trying to get there, I just continue to get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And what I need to do, these are the images that go through my head when I'm sitting still. As I need to sink to the bottom and I need to take the deepest breath that I've ever taken. And I need to realize that God in His sovereignty has everything. And if the sea represents this world and this life that I live and all the garbage that I'm having to deal with and the stress and the good times and the bad times and everything else, just sit there and quit trying. Drown that we might quit trying to serve ourselves in righteousness and that we would rest completely in the righteousness of God and His power. And that is the hardest. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's like a buddy of mine when he was in pilot school saying how when your instructor would put the plane into a tailspin, you know, and it's doing like this. He said, it's counterintuitive. You're pulling up, you're pulling up, you're pulling up, and it's spinning harder. He said, you push into the spin, you push into the ground, and it will level itself out. That's why I've never done that, because I probably would kill myself accidentally. It's counterintuitive to let go of the reins. It's counterintuitive to let go of the steering wheel. It's counterintuitive. Beloved, we are not in charge of our redemption. So why do we work so hard sometimes as believers to try to take back the reins? What does that prove for us? It proves we're fleshly. The tree of life is the life. And what would we do if we had the tree of life? We would pluck its fruit, wouldn't eat it. And I would put it under hydroponic conditions and try to replicate it. And I'd try to give trees to everybody. You say, oh, we're going we're gonna to have a whole forest of life, not just a tree. And that's what I would do. We'd capitalize on it. Beloved, it's done. It's a finished work. Jesus Christ is our resting place. Sit still and breathe deeply in the grace of God. And my metaphors, my examples, they're not really helpful. It's just my thoughts. I'm crazy. I'm just crazy. What matters is what the Scripture teaches us. The man and his wife were naked. They had nothing. They were vulnerable. But they were not ashamed. They needed nothing. They didn't need clothes. They didn't need protection from anything. They had life with God, with them, in the center of all things. Rest in Let's pray. Father, only you can make a simple resting place out of all of our thoughts. Only you can bring the chaos of our imagination to the center of Christ. Lord, you alone can rest our souls. You alone can give us the peace that we need in our minds. And Father, this world is upside down and it has been upside down since the very beginning. Since the very beginning. But Lord, that is our perspective. It's not upside down. It's not backwards. It's not out of control. It is completely in your control. And you've established all the purposes and all the means through every condition that you have desired perfectly without changing one way 
to bring about the redemption of your people, Lord. And we stand here today, not because we have come and found you and dug through all the thoughts of our hearts and world to come to discover who you are, but Lord, because you have grabbed us out of darkness and you have presented us to yourself in great splendor and glory with all the light of the revelation of Christ. And you have given us peace in our heart by your Spirit to know that rest is only in Him. But Lord, oh Lord, you know us. We're frail and we're weak and we try so hard to establish things to be in order. We try so hard to to bring about conditions that would make us at peace. But Lord, we know that you are the only peace giver. So if nothing more, Father, help us this day that we may encourage one another in this peace that we may surely be able to say that things are well with our soul because Christ has been raised from the dead. And that in His life, we find our greatest intimacy and our greatest purpose and our greatest peace. In Jesus' name, amen.